think so much of the way people experience Christianity is rules and dogma and organization, and that's necessary to protect the system. But then there is this other reality, right, where we're very clear on what Christ said, and we don't do those things. And then we are equally clear on what he said nothing about, but we are really sure what those rules and ideas are too, and we run forward with them. Welcome to Fuck, a podcast about frequently unasked, unanswerable, and uncomfortable questions. I'm Yenna. I'm Tempest. And I'm Erin. Come along with us as we engage in messy, gritty, and authentic conversations about faith and life from the perspectives of three minoritized women in ministry. been with us before or welcome to us if you are just experiencing us for the first time today. So we're going to dive into our topic. we got a lot to think about. And our question for now is what are we not seeing? Are we not seeing? What are we not seeing where? So as employees and I would extrapolate out and say followers of the Christ, (laughs) what are we not seeing in that realm, in that realm of faith and religion and world at large. It's difficult for me not to respond to, as followers of the Christ, what are we not seeing? And it, it makes me think about the Christ in everything, in everyone, and how, to a very large degree, our monotheism has made us struggle to honor Christ in other things, in things that aren't our faith practice and ways where God is in other parts of the world, in creation, outside of whatever our faith origin as Christians tells us to believe. So my first thought is to sort of set that, draw that out, put that forward. My simple answer, because Erin gave a very deep answer, is that I don't see in many places, especially in religious institutions, Christ's true teachings mm-hmm. of loving our neighbors, protecting the vulnerable. And instead, what I see is how our religious institutions have really adapted secular values of capitalism, consumerism, that mentality of just consume and protecting our own assets and not really doing the teachings that Christ has set forth. Yeah, I think for me, it's kind of that adage of, you know, college would be great without its classes. And so it's sort of like the same idea of church. Like, wow, church would be great without all these people. Like, <laughs> Jesus would be amazing without all of this. And I think in some ways, the adage can be kind of pushed out. And yeah, sometimes the people make it real difficult, but it's also the people that I think Christ wanted and actually demanded that we disciple along with ourselves in that discipleship, that we continue to be disciples, which means we continue to be learning and struggling and challenging and figuring it out as we go along. Not to its perfection, because that's not the end. God is perfect. We are not. So the end is not that, 
but it's the process of all of that. And so that's, as we talked about last time, very messy yeah. and very gritty. And it's not neatly wrapped the way that I think a lot of churches in the Christianese of it all <laughs> want to be. They want to be nicely wrapped, perfect boxes, that once you open them, everything's orderly, everything's tidy, everything's where it should be. And that's not who Jesus was, from my recollection <laughs> and readings. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you for that, because I think as I reflect on everything that you both said in my initial thought, that that's exactly it, right? That, But who decides what goes in the box? What's tidy? How we assemble the box? And I think so much of the way people experience Christianity is rules and dogma and organization, and that's necessary to protect the system. But then there is this other reality, right, where we're very clear on what Christ said, and we don't do those things. And then we are equally clear on what he said nothing about, but we are really sure what those rules and ideas are too, and we run forward with them. So there's this interesting disorderedness about how we actually live it out based on, you know, who decides who decides, basically uh, what we focus on. And I think actually it was Nietzsche is credited with saying something like, your focus is your reality. And I think sometimes our emphasis is on the wrong syllable, where we're more interested in policing each other than sort of saying, well, how can I get you in here? How can I include you? It's more about, have you earned it to be in? We start there. Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting. I didn't think of it like that. When you said that, I immediately thought of that idea of focus. And sometimes when you're so focused, you're so, like, tunnel visioned on something, you really don't see it at the edges. There are no periphery. There is nothing else but the thing, but the goal, but the thing in mind. And how exclusive that is mm-hmm. and how it can be frightening. I mean, it can almost be like cult. Like, I just thought I would think of like cults. Like you just, everybody has to be, everybody wears the Nikes, everybody walks down the line, everybody drinks the juice, you know, and everything else that's outside of that parameter is outside of that parameter. So that makes me think about how the focus at the beginning was to share what Christ did in transforming the old faith, helping people to see how they were not really following God and God's mandates. We're talking about Jewish faith now, Judaism. And he revolutionized that faith, right? Mm -hmm. And those who followed him his disciples, Paul, and others came after him, they were so focused on getting Christ right and getting Christ to others, they had to start making this dogma, orthodoxy. What do we have to believe about God and Christ and Holy Spirit so that people can really buy into this new religion that's opened up to the world? And becoming so focused, they kind of ignored what fell aside to to the margins. And after that, if you are trying to spread this news, this gospel, this good news that Jesus Christ saves us, then you have to make it succinct. You have to make it bite-sized so people can just consume it. Again, it's that sense of, I want I want bite-sized Theology. I want bite-sized faith that I can just consume without having to worry about. And it's just all in one, mm-hmm. right? 
And in doing so, we have really done disservice to what Christ was about. And you talked about church would be great if it wasn't for people, <laughs> right? I mean, I literally I said this to my husband not too long ago. <laughs> I said, oh, I just realized what my problem is. And he said, what? I just don't like people. <laughs> and he said, oh, honey, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> you're called to love people. And I said, I love people. I just don't like them. <laughs> and how sad. Mm-hmm. How sad it is that, you know, we have so otherized this, this great faith, otherized Christ. I can't even recognize the Christ that mainline, mainstream Christians talk about. And so that's really uncomfortable, right? Because I'm an ordained minister. But, you know, a lot of times I end up saying when I introduce myself to people that don't know me, they ask me what I do. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm so embarrassed to say sometimes, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian pastor. Yeah. And and then like, oh, I'm not one of those Christians. Perfect. Yeah. I feel that immensely. I, as a queer person, I, it is uncomfortable for me when I meet people outside of faith circles and have to explain, have the opportunity. And I find that I do the same thing. I feel this need to over-explain and put out caveats so that they understand I'm a Christian, but not like you think. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, when I say that, and I think that they understand immediately is, but not like the one who's interested in pressing for why you're not included and why you're not allowed and purity and making you feel bad about who you are and how you are and, and just really being rigid in all these ways that aren't actually affirming and loving. And That's I right. feel this need to sort of vomit that out at them so they understand that I'm in the minority of Christians, is what I'm saying. <laughs> That's just That's crazy exactly to think. It's so crazy to think. Yeah, and it's exactly what you're talking about. What do you think, if you didn't have to do the caveats, <laughs> how would you just introduce yourself in general if you didn't have to do the caveats of thinking about, oh, well, it's not like that. It's not like this, you know? I have an alternate version I've been rolling with. Now, this is not very, <laughs> this is not elevator yet. But I will often say, kind of like the way you think about the things that you attribute to Buddhism or Zen and things that are just very inclusive and loving and peaceful, it's like if Christianity were like that, and it is like that, but that's just not what's most commonly expressed in the West. It fascinates me that when we go to get massages, how often do the massage parlors have, you know, portraiture and art iconography that is Eastern and Buddhist. And the whole idea when you walk in, right, is peace. (laughs) That we, these Westerners, and if you said to them, please tell me a teaching, tell me anything, they can't. (laughs) But when we want to sell and experience what it is to be calm and deeply at peace, we're going to give you Eastern everything. That's right. That's what we plug in. I think it's such a... Because... Yeah, because we don't show, we're going back to that word, what do you see, yeah. you know, what's not seen, because we don't show that aspect mm-hmm. of Christianity. Mm-hmm. We have abandoned such a great oh, tradition great. of meditation, mm-hmm. contemplative kinds of practices. You know, Jesus went away by himself and spent time in solitude, but we don't practice that. Very much. It's very uncomfortable to us. Yeah, it's funny. That brings me to a thought. Go with me. <laughs> um, 
in my, uh, I think my last year of seminary, and I took a class on Judaism for Christians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like a, you know, quick summer class, and they talked about mysticism of Judaism and the poetic nature of the teachings and the ruha and like, you know, the discourse that the different rabbis and teachers would have with one another and then how they would reconcile that for themselves. And every evening of that class, our teachers, professors who are also usually pastors, would say, okay, this is not your opportunity to become Jewish. This is your opportunity to stay Christian and take what you know about the foundations of our tradition into Christianity. It's not a chance to convert. We don't want to convert you all into Jews. But we all were at the evening just being like, wow. Why can't we be Jewish? Like, it was just like, no, it's a class. It was just like, wow, I would love to have mysticism again. It was just like, you know, all these things that we learned. And we are those things. That's the crazy part. We are those things. We just don't bring them to the fore. Right. And that's why I was so excited when I was introduced to Thomas Burton. Mm-hmm. Because he was a Catholic priest. But he incorporated that Zen aspect, the teachings mm-hmm. of Buddha that is very meditative, mysticism into Christian faith. And so that those things can come together. They actually are from the same place. Well, and I think this is where we get into this conversation about what we see. Who decided who decided? Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about Thomas Merton, then we're talking about the desert fathers and mothers who go out and create seats and have cells and are doing this contemplative, mystical thing but empire religion comes along. That's right. And says, well, we've got to get people to buy in. We've got to build this. We've got to do what institutions do. And so what I think is really fun or beautiful is to be able to sort of zoom out and zoom in to know that that's there. And God bless truly Thomas Merton for helping bring that back into our understanding because Vatican II brought some really awesome things and really put the kibosh on things like that. And then additionally, I think of like in our Presbyterian tradition, Iona, which was its little also outpost where Roman Catholicism didn't have their fingers on that. Mm-hmm. So in the same way in the Ionian tradition, we get pieces of this other way of knowing and experiencing God that isn't businessized, systematized in this kind of, how are we going to sell this to the masses? Mm-hmm. And one more thing, like, from a sales perspective, right, we know that uncertain people don't buy, right? They don't know what to do, so they walk away. I'm thinking of that. Mm-hmm. And another great sales training is show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. And both of those are resonating with me as we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. And how do we, you know, there's the gifs on social media around, show me you have a toddler without telling me you have a toddler. And then people mm-hmm. to put pictures, you know, <laughs> whatever. Like, how do we show, right, not tell? That we're Christian. What does that mean? And what do we do with a culture that's obsessed with sound bites and what's easy to digest and simple when the, the deepest pieces of wisdom and knowing are individual, they're interior, and they're rooted in not knowing? And in this thread of conversation, it is uncomfortable yet necessary to bring the fact that there's, you know, talked about imperialism. But colonialism also. Yeah. And how things got whitewashed. Right. So I am Korean American. I was born in Korea, raised in Korea till sixth grade and came over to the States. So I'm pretty bicultural and bilingual and retain a lot of memories of my traditions 
and culture living in Korea. And let me tell you what Christianity did when it came to Korea and other parts of the world as well, obviously, but this is what I know firsthand, so I'll share from that perspective, is that it has really made traditional Korean culture non, um, what's the word, that it cannot marry into the culture. Meaning, all these beautiful Korean traditions, cultural traditions, were abandoned at best, but at worst, was demonized. Yeah, they were eradicated. Right. Right. And they were labeled as evil against God. You know, if you're a Christian, you do not bow to your ancestors on the memorial celebration of your disease. We always do a memorial service in our family, which is on the day of my grandmother's passing. We will get together, have a meal, and we will pray and thank God for her life. But traditionally, we would have a table set for the deceased, and we will bow before the deceased to honor them, not to worship them, but to honor them, because bowing is just a traditional way of saying hello. It's like Westerners shaking hands, but that was that became evil. That became worshiping something other than God, so you're breaking the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And so slowly, one by one, those beautiful traditions, In if you're a Christian, we have to throw that away, throw that out. And so that's what colonialism does, you know, when it comes in. And even though Korea was never colonized by America, it is heavily, heavily influenced and somewhat controlled by American policies. And that's another topic for another day. But it, it is, but I, I think it's important for our dear listeners. Like all it, three of them. All three of them. <laughs> but but don't you know, look, we just need a little bit of peace, y'all. <laughs> that's but right. Jokes aside, when you go <clears throat> and you retrace like the papal bulls and the doctrine of discipline, there's nothing to interpret. Like what popes gave conquistadors and mm-hmm. other, I mean, obviously the crusades, the God-given declaration right to do is stunning. There's no way around it. And mm-hmm. then the way, like you said, where it wasn't about learning or integration and new levels of wholeness, it was 100% about domination and conquering and enslaving, and it's all right there in plain black and white. There's mm-hmm. nothing to interpret. And so there is no way for us to talk about how we see now and how we maybe see with better glasses or upgraded glasses or bifocals or whatever whatever you know analogies we want to use. Multifocal. Yeah, multifocal, <laughs> you know, without acknowledging where we've come from, which are some pretty rough glasses. Yep. Some pretty rough perspectives about what mattered and what was right and what was wrong or what we had the right to do. Mm-hmm. So public service announcement. Uh-huh. If you're looking for something Close to orthodoxy, please turn off your podcast at this moment. <laughs> and you haven't figured that out already. Yeah. We believe in generous orthodoxy. Generous orthodoxy. <laughs> no, I love that. It feels like in the conversation, we're really thinking about reclaiming things that are really a part of us and seeing those things and worshiping those things that were good and that are a part of what we what we love and what we don't want to hide about our, our faith, but also putting away those items that have been hurtful and devastating and just hideous in yeah. time and space. But we can't, you can't completely divorce yourself from those either. You must acknowledge them 
That's true. And then you must, I think, bless and release them. That's, that's, those are my language. Yeah. You must bless and release it. But you have to bless it first. And then you can release it. That's mm. There is no just pushing it under the rug. What is that got us? Like, pushing things under the rug, pushing, you know, the Holocaust or any other enslavement times or encampments or slavery. All of those things, pushing those under the rug, have gotten us nowhere. You have to see Aaron's face Because you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of Desmond Tutu and the um, Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. Committees. And the whole process, right, was around creating, we won't go down the rabbit hole of restorative justice, but ultimately it was, it was refusing to push it under the rug. Ultimately, right, like I think in his book of forgiving, he talks about the fourth step being renewing or releasing the relationship, but that you don't make that decision until you've gone through the process yes. of the steps that precede it. Correct. And I think that's, so what you said is so powerful of, of blessing it and releasing it, but that you don't. We have to go through it to get to the other side. And that's not our microwavable culture. It's not our instant gratification culture. It's not our bite-sized Jesus. We can't have bite-sized Jesus and process. That's just not, those two two things do not, they do not go here. (laughs) That making me think about my other practice, being a therapist, being trained in therapy. You know, we have to look at our past. Right. In order for us to move forward but we don't stay in the past right in order for us to move to a better future and not stay where you are stuck sometimes you look backwards but know when to stop looking backwards and moving forward and i use this analogy of driving when you drive we're trying to get to point a to point b you can't drive reverse the whole time but there are times you have to look at your reverse mirror and move backwards in order to move forwards right so it's it's the same concept. I love that concept of bless and release because unless we acknowledge it and bless, even though it's hard to bless some of those ugly components of who we are, where we've been, and what we have done, we cannot release it and move forward. And I think this is especially important, poignant in our era of cancel culture. And I can't remember, it's West Africans, the same concept of Sankofu or Sankofa, right, where the bird is have the egg on its back and it's looking backward, but its feet are forward. It's the same concept of information is in the past, it's informative, but we live life forward. That we have to be able to look at what happened and have some context around what they thought at the time, why they made those decisions. And that truth can be. And then we can look at it knowing what we know now and say, knowing what we know now, that was wrong. We can't continue to do that because we've done it. We have to do things differently. And how do we, what does that mean? And it manifests in a lot of ways, right? Renaming schools, potentially taking down statues, renaming roads. And for us in ministry, it means looking at our hymnals. It means looking at our prayers and our language. I mean, it really, at its core, is potentially some real undoing and redoing, or certainly much more looking outward at who who didn't we include here. And Knowing what we know now, we can't keep doing what we're doing. That's right. Yeah. Renovation continues. <laughs> yeah, right. the renovation continues. That's a great note to end this episode on. What do you think? It, it is. And I, I wanted to simply put, put a plug in. I saw Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. Oh, I think oh, it's that funny. I need to say this. It made me want to be Chinese. This is what I to be doing. And that's why I want to offer it is how beautiful a time. I mean, 
it, it's got beautiful stories yeah. about ancestry, integration yeah. of language, and of females who are empowered and capable. And I, well, I treasure that I get to live in this time mm-hmm. when what a world to be living in. But it takes us sort of being willing to tell stories differently than we've told them in the past. Mm-hmm. And nothing about that movie to me felt tokeny or virtue signaling. I'm sure we could nitpick it. I'm sure someone has, but. It just felt like a way things could be. That's fair. Yeah. That's great. I love that. I guess he's moving up. <laughs> I wanted to learn martial arts. Yeah. I was like, uh, I'm 50. Do you think this is possible at my age? That's too late. But did you see the shirt I was wearing last week? Yes, I loved it. I wore a t-shirt that says, it's an honor just to be an Asian. Or, it's an honor just to be Asian. Which is a quote from Sandra Oh. And I totally, like, felt that after watching that movie as well. That's awesome. I love that. 100%. I thought it was, there were a couple of great lines that I need to go back and write down. But there was a line where, I think it was his auntie, who said to him something like, you are everyone who has come before you. Mm-hmm. Take that and then make it your own, uniquely your own. Something like that. That was such a beautiful honoring of ancestry and of all that had preceded, but fullness in himself yeah. and how to integrate all those. And I just thought that this is where ancestry and animism and all of that, there's so much richness there if we can see differently about where God is. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Till next time, friends. <laughs> to be continued. Hi, friends. This is Tempest from the Fog Podcast. Just letting you know that we will be dropping our new episodes every two weeks. That's right. Bi-weekly. We hope that you'll join us for our journey on faith and life conversations. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media so we can reach more listeners. If you got a question you want us to wrestle with on our future episodes, send it to us. The link is in the episode notes. Want to help us bring you higher and higher quality content? Consider supporting us through Venmo or by joining our Patreon to get access to special bonus episodes.